What better way to start the fourth year of our film music podcast soundtracking than with one of the undisputed kings of the art, Quentin Tarantino. His new movie, Once Upon a Time in Hollywood, is everything you'd hope for when it comes to the deployment of pop cues and also features score by the likes of Bernard Herrmann and Maurice Jarre. Starring Leonardo DiCaprio, Brad Pitt and Margot Robbie, amongst many others, Once Upon a Time is set in 1969 Los Angeles, where an ageing television actor and his stunt double navigate the changing Hollywood film industry. It blends fiction with real events, most notably the murder of Sharon Tate at the hands of the Manson family. As you'd expect from Quentin, there are countless super stylish moments in the film, such as when Sharon dances to this track at a party at the Playboy Mansion, Son of a Loving Man by the Buchanan Brothers. absolute pleasure and I said to someone last night when they asked me what I thought of the film I was like do you know what I felt like I'd had Christmas with Quentin Tarantino and he'd bought me everything I wanted for Christmas wow that's maybe one of the best compliments I've ever gotten because like I get it so I appreciate that thank you so much um, yeah I uh, once upon a time in Hollywood is it's a feast it's a feast of so many things for your eyes for your ears for your emotions for your senses you've done an absolutely beautiful job I know that you've been working on this for a long time and you wanted to make this for a long time, but what was the thing that made you want to make it? What was the thing that made you want to tell the story? It's a catalyst, I guess. Oh, that's, that's interesting. Um, that's a really good question. I, the, the, the two things that I guess were my North Star as <laughs> yeah. far as following this, because I had to follow it. I had to get Listen there. Listen to it, yeah, yeah. Because yeah. um, it was a long time coming. One, it was exploring an actor in a career situation the way Rick was, yeah. all right? Because he was kind of based on about five different guys. And I find all five of those guys interesting actors and their careers very interesting, and especially compared to guys who couldn't, were successful on TV and did movies, but weren't able to quite pull off the transition. Yeah. Where, you know, where people like uh, uh, Steve McQueen and Clint Eastwood and James Garner at that time were able to yeah. do that. And so I thought that was interesting, d d delving with that era of Hollywood and an actor stuck in that kind of situation. Because I always think those actors, are, there's a, a poignancy about them. Yeah, yeah, yeah. So there's that. And then there was the Sharon yeah. aspect of it, all right, of uh, the idea of somebody who has been defined by her tragic end. Mm -hmm. And there was an aspect of not creating a character for an actress to play. Mm -hmm. So that's, you know, revealing different aspects of them. It was more like a real actress playing a real person. So we're not trying to get at the character. Yeah. We just see her living her life. Yeah. 
folding clothes, running errands, mm -hmm. driving around, listening to the radio, uh, uh, talking to this shopkeeper, talking to this shopkeeper, uh, and uh, just living her life, which is what was robbed from her. Yeah. So I thought there was some poignancy as far as that was concerned. And Margot just plays it so beautifully. I, I can't even imagine anybody oh else God. doing it. The I mean, light and the, the optimism yeah. that she just, just exudes well, is wonderful. Well, well, there's this aspect about Sharon in the film is on one hand, like I said, I didn't really want to make her a character. I wanted to make her both a representative of the real person. Yeah. But also, she's almost like this sunny sun, sunbeam <laughs> ghost yeah. that's like very sweetly haunting the movie. Yeah, you're kind of like, what if? Yeah, exactly. Kind of, so there's yeah. the real person, but then there's also the idea of Sharon, mm -hmm. and there's this idea of what she represents, and this idea of, and, but some of what she represents is the life not lived of her. Yeah, and she loves music. Yeah, yeah, she does. <laughs> Yes, she does. I love watching her dance about. Yeah. Oh, I love it. Well, in particular, well, I love her dancing scene at the Playboy Mansion, but I yeah. also I just love her like listening to Wayne Cochran saying, "I can't turn you loose," and just yeah, and bopping her head. Yeah. And then you know, like, like like the studio was like saying something like, "Like, do we need to watch like the entire trailer? All right, can we just cut to her singing?" And I go. I like watching Sharon bob her head listening to the music. Yeah, and I like <laughs> and the those whole, big glasses. Paul Raver and the Raiders kind yeah, of thing yeah, yeah. as well, which is just brilliant with that whole. Well, kind but, of... but that but you know, but that connect that connects to the whole story though, because yeah. the thing about it is, who lived in the house before was Terry Melcher, who was the boy wonder of Columbia Records, and he's the one. He uh, Paul Revere and the Raiders was his brainchild, and at one point in time. Mark Lindsay, the lead singer of Paul Revere and the Raiders, lived in that house with Terry Melcher. Not only did he live in that house with Terry Melcher, the piano that you see Abigail play straight shooter on, that was the piano in the house, and that's the piano Mark Lindsay wrote the song Good Time on. Walking in the misty morning dew Thinking how it used to be When I walked with you Can ivory daisies in the golden sun Does she love me? Pull those petals off one by one Put your hand in mine and run The good times The good times <laughs> See, this is what I love about you is the fact you're a movie geek and you love that authenticity to things. And you're like, I'm not just going to have any piano. Yeah. I need to have that piano. Well. I don't know if it's the real piano, but I mean, but but the, yeah. but the real piano in the house yeah. was a rent, you know, it was just yeah. was the piano that was there. But, but yeah, 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 yeah. But the whole idea of that. But then, oh, but, but that was also one of the interesting things about the story is the fact that this murderous, weird, culty tale was connected to all this Hollywood stuff. I mean, yeah. Terry Melcher himself was Doris Day's son. And did Manson <laughs> not like try and give him? to publish his music, to to, to Yeah, well, well, I mean, he he was his in. Yeah. You know, he was his in to the industry and stuff. And then, like, and they kind of, 
ever so vaguely got along. Yeah. All right? And they knew each other. They, they knew each other. And Terry Melcher had sex with a lot of the girls at the, at the Spawn Ranch. Yeah. Uh, everybody that was part of their connected group did. I mean, that's kind of why, that's how they got in. Yeah. You know, it was yeah, Manson yeah, yeah. was pimping out the girls, girls. Yeah. you know, as, as catnip yeah. to keep these guys interested. And Terry saw something in, in, in Charlie Manson. He saw something. I mean, not, I don't think something, I'm going to treat him like Bob Dylan yeah, all right, yeah, uh, yeah, yeah. at Columbia Records, yeah. all right? But he thought there was something in that. He didn't really know if it was necessarily a music recording. Yeah. Like, they had another friend of theirs that was a big part of it. Who He wanted to make a documentary about the Manson family. Wow. Was, he was the guy who actually realized there was something going on. What, 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 yeah, yeah. Yeah, the, uh, uh, kind of the way to explore it. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Amazing. Right, music. And what I find really interesting, and you know, we've talked before about music, but with this, I love that you had a journey that you were going to take, yeah. and then it took a, a different journey mm -hmm. because of going back to that whole authentic thing. And this whole wonderful thing is a bit like a, it's a memory piece for you. Yeah. Oh, it very in, much in, is, yeah. In, in elements to it. But, but tell us a little bit about it, because I know that you write to music and you shoot with music, but... Well, yeah, I worked on this thing for like, you know, for about five years. So the thing about it is, well, naturally, at some point, I mean... Well, a movie about the 60s, I guess the soundtrack's going to be pretty important, <laughs> all right? Um, and so um, over the course of these five years, I think I made about like three different cassette tapes that were the de facto soundtrack for the movie uh, along the way, and I'd play it in the car and just get inspired by it and stuff. So all through the writing process, that was kind of the deal, and I thought I knew what I wanted to do and where I was going to go with it. But then when we started pre-production and we actually had a, a crew working for us, one of yeah. the things that we had is we had uh, – uh, archivist and, and research people that would give me materials because I remember how usequious uh, 93KHJ was in Los Angeles at that time. So I knew I wanted to uh, set the movie to that pace and yeah. that score and, and commercials and DJs and all that kind of stuff. 93KHJ Golden. Oh, yeah. B. Clark. Boyle Heights. Uh, I had them go out and, 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 and find me some KHJ uh, shows so I could listen to, to kind of build this from. And so they came up with about 14 hours for me to listen to. Now, by the way, when I, there's not like they went to KHJ. When, I don't think KHJ exists anymore. Uh, it's now KCAL 9. But there's no KHJ with, like, sitting with uh, archives. archives. Yeah. No, it's like somebody in 1968 or 1969 <laughs> put their tape recorder next to uh, the radio and hit play record and... No matter how good their batteries are, we'll find out. All right, but you know, uh, uh, but those are you know, those 14 hours are made from that. Was somebody in '68 or '69 hitting play record on their tape recorder, wow. and then that's what they're made up from. But it's like a full hour or an hour 15 minutes of the show. So I had about 14 hours of that, and so I, I listened to everything so I could chronicle it all, and it really took me back. I it bet. was really kind of amazing. And then once I heard that, and I realized how well this would work as almost like with the disc jock is almost acting like period narrators yeah, yeah, yeah. taking you through the story but even the commercials everything about it just and the, the the jingles all right so, seemed like that too and then once i started really listening to that it was like it seemed like cheating to use any song that wasn't on these tapes they have to be on these yeah. tapes i don't always have to have the intro and the outro yeah but if it's not on these tapes 
It's not the movie. I'm lying. Yeah, it's just it just felt like cheap. Yeah. <laughs> Little girl, D. Clark, 349 at KHJ. I'm the real Don Steve Show. What do you say? You want to be the prettiest, sunniest blonde in town? Well, of course you do. Well, you listen to this now. Sun did it, but it's really Summer Blonde, the gentle hair lightener. Just shampoo, it looks like the sun did it. Get Summer Blonde or new Summer Blonde Plus with its own conditioning rinse for extra body and shine. Say the sun did it, don't let on that. It was really Summer Blonde. Light and such a tiny touch that you can always say. But the sun did it. It's the sun. The sun did it. That's the super cop-out. Mojave goes from 0 to 30 in 1.8 seconds, but the down payment remains at zeros. Can you dig it, huh? Well, you check it, and you can catch it at your nearest Montgomery Ward Auto Center, open every night until 9. The real Don Steele, 93K Well, I remember being a kid, you know, when there was limited choice. Yeah, yeah. And so you would, you would listen to the radio, and the, the way that the radio and the, the songs, the speaking parts and the adverts, they were all kind of morphed into one in a way because the jingles for the radio station would be made to sound like the tunes. No, the no, 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 that's exactly right. And I think K H.J. took that further than anybody else had done at that time. I only want you to listen to this uh, commercial if you're under 25. It's about new Tanya tanning butter, the suntan product with no sunscreen added. Uh, and you know what that means. It means the only ingredients between you and the sun are natural coconut oil and cocoa butter, Hawaii's favorites. That and a little lava smoke thrown in there. for Tanya, Tanya tanning butter is guaranteed to give you really deep Hawaiian tan faster than you ever thought possible. It's so fast, in fact, that you might even burn a little bit, but we've all done that. Not enough to hurt, though. If you want the deepest, fastest Hawaiian tan on the beach, you better pick up on some Tanya tanning butter. Prices start at a low 85 cents. That's a small price to pay. Let's face it. A deeper, faster Hawaiian tan. That's what you get when you use Tanya. Because KHJ had that pop, top 40 California sound, and it was vivid. It was very, very vivid. And so one of the things was is that radio stations started buying their format. So they would listen to what KHJ played, mm-hmm. and they would just duplicate. Uh, they would duplicate the playlist, but also duplicate the way they presented everything, yeah, the yeah, way yeah. KHJ did. But you're right, though. Uh, the jingles and the commercials done for KHJ, those commercial jingles almost sounded indistinguishable from the songs. You could turn it, you could turn on the uh, the Heaven Sent commercial and just assume you're listening to a, a top 40 <laughs> KHJ hit until the You'd Helena Rubin... Yeah, until the Helena Rubinstein uh, uh, a part comes in and go, oh, oh, this is a commercial. Well, but that, but that, that, that was all part of the KHJ sound. Ladies and gentlemen, the beat goes on. KHJ Los Angeles. 3.31 in Los Angeles. This is the real Don Steve. Hello, 
get out of that pantry. Break a Los Bravos. Break a little lovin' with your cupcakes. 334 at KHJ and the Real Don Steel Show. Suck it a minute. Heaven Scent Fragrance by Helena Rubenstein. Spray it on and heavenly things happen. Heaven Scent. Splash in it. Laugh in it. Live in it. Love in it. You'll find Heaven Scent Fragrance at Helena Rubenstein counters everywhere. So good. The Vagabond, attention now, the Vagabond class of 1958 of University High will hold a reunion June 22nd. Oh, but you'll get to look at everybody's uh, hair thinning and see if uh, if Jane really was a victim of baby fat. We'll find out for sure now. For information and reservations, you phone 478-2370. Los Angeles weather. Low overcast tonight, low around 58, mostly sunny tomorrow with a high near 68. No smog beaches now, 62. Valley 66, downtown 65. Orings County East. Don't dare stare at the illustrated man. There are fearful pictures on his skin, but the most fearful thing is tattooed on his soul. The Illustrated Man, Ray Bradbury's masterpiece of the supernatural, an incredible journey to the outer limits of imagination. The Illustrated Man, starring Rod Steiger and Claire Bloom from Warner Brothers Seven Arts in Technicolor. This picture is rated M. And now playing exclusively at Pacific's Pickwood Theater in Wendy Westwood. 93 KHJ. Like, for instance, um, when we have uh, the, the movie spot for the Illustrated Man mm-hmm. playing on there, all of a sudden this weird music kind of comes in. Turns out the, the spot that Warner Brothers sent them had no music. KHJ took library music and put it on top of it because it just made it punchier, made it better. <laughs> we asked, well, there's only one of the DJs left alive. Uh, he did a couple things for us named uh, Johnny Williams. He's yeah. in his 80s. And we asked him, I go, would the station manager, would he like put library music on already cut you know, radio spots? He goes, oh, he was totally known for doing that. No, he, <laughs> it all had to be, it all had to be fire. Yeah. It all had yeah. to pop. It all had to be exciting. It all had to be uh, hum- hummable. I remember singing the jingles as, as well as the kind of songs that were yeah, on the radio. Yeah, absolutely, that, yeah. That sort of thing. <laughs> This is Batman. And Robin. With exclusive news for KHJ listeners. It's the Batphone Secret Number Contest presented by Boss Radio. There's a terrific prize for the first KHJ listener to guess the secret number of our Batphone. You've seen us answering the Batphone on TV. It's a special hotline Commissioner Gordon uses to contact us whenever there's trouble. There are seven digits in the Batphone's secret number. Listen to what you'll win if yours is the first correct answer received by KHJ. You'll visit Batman and me at 20th Century Fox and be our guest for lunch at the studio. Then you'll ride to the Batcave in the Batmobile, where Robin and I will present you with a 1966 console color television set. To visit us and win the color TV, just guess the secret Batphone number. Watch for Robin and me on Channel 7 Wednesday and Thursday nights. And keep it on KHJ for more clues in the Batphone secret number contest. that it was an easy, that the, the, all this music that was within embedded in these tapes 
fitted with the narrative, fitted with the character. Well, I try to, I think that it happens quite a lot in this movie, more than I normally do it. I try not to have a song that yeah. that is like bang on yeah. about what's going on, where the lyrics really, I, I think I probably do it more on this than I normally do it. Normally, I try to stay away from that, where yeah. it's like the song is directly commenting on yeah. what's going on, you know. Man walks through door, man walks through door. I, I try not <laughs> yeah. to do that. But, uh, 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 but uh, uh, um, what I found really interesting from a historical perspective, listening to these KHJ tapes, and it all it makes sense, but I don't think I ever consciously thought about it, mm-hmm. was I was surprised how many really terrific songs that they played by known groups that did really good for KHJ and did really good in Los Angeles, but didn't necessarily break out nationwide. Oh, wow. Like... You... Well, like, for instance, okay, like, okay, like, if, you know, I, I've always remember thinking about this, you know, uh, I've been collecting records forever, and I have uh, 60s and 70s stuff and everything, and so you collect, you, you pick up a record like uh, The Box Tops Greatest Hits that Rhino put out in the 80s. Yeah. Well, The Box Tops Greatest Hits, okay, The Letter and, <laughs> and Cry Like a Baby, what else is there? Well, actually, there was quite a few, but they didn't just break out. Yeah, yeah, to, yeah. To uh, national, mm-hmm. they 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 could have done really good on the Michigan charts. They could have really done good on New York charts. They could have done good. Uh, they could have made the radio in Los Angeles, but that didn't mean they broke national. And so all of a sudden, with with uh, the box tops, you have Choo Choo Train, you have Sweet Cream Ladies, you have Metter and Church, you have their version of Dylan's uh, 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 "I Shall Be Released." on KHJ. I mean, I have four different times at Choo Choo Train I mean, with every single one of the DJs introducing it. It just didn't break national. I got a present for brother Choo Choo Train representation of the KHJ sound. So I really found myself really plugging into the songs that seem like they should be iconic songs of the era that you can almost sing along with after hearing it once, but they never broke national. Yeah. I thought that was interesting. And well, it makes it Los Angeles. I heard you say as well that American Graffiti was a, a, a kind of influence. And for you personally, was that soundtrack was, yeah. was this kind of doorway into this particular era of music. It absolutely was. It, I wasn't thinking about it when I was writing the movie. Yeah. But when I, when I made the decision, well, once I heard the tape. So when I made the decision that, oh, I can use these commercials. Yeah. I can use this DJ stuff. 
we've created a really interesting thing in the movie, and I can kind of duplicate that. Yeah. Big chunks of it on the soundtrack album. Have a dream of a huge, luscious, creamy root beer float? Well, if you haven't tried one with Mug Root Beer, start drooling now. Mug, old-fashioned root beer in the new Twist Top bottle. H.J. Boss Hitbox. Now full of jitterbugs from Pico Rivera, baby, and we'll cut one loose for Hey! Heck, doll, your mama looking for you. Graffiti, but then that means, oh, we could definitely do this. And then upon realizing that, I realized how much the, the film had actually been influenced by American Graffiti between, like, characters in cars driving around all day seemingly aimlessly, all right, which is what happens in uh, American Graffiti, right down to the fact that uh, uh, Margaret Qualley's uh, Manson character Pussycat could be Suzanne Summers in the uh, uh, T-Bird, all right, the girl that he keeps seeing all over town. Uh, and in both cases, kind of realistic for their time period, or how he would be seeing her all over town. Yeah. Um, but the thing is, that ended up being a, a, a seminal album for me when I got it, because I, w I had just started really listening to oldies radio, because that was during the 50s revival in the 70s. Yeah. Uh, so I'm like 13, I hadn't even seen the movie. So I, I'm loving the American Graffiti soundtrack just on its own. Yeah. You know, I didn't see the movie until it's re-release about the, uh, you know, after Star Wars, which was like 78. <laughs> but that's the wonderful thing that we talked about last time, was the fact that before we had this opportunity to watch films, you know, at the drop of a hat, yeah. these wonderful musical creations were the way that you could, after you'd seen the movie at the cinema, put it on in your bedroom and relive no. that. No, I mean that was. I mean, head. I think that was the whole reason that people actually made soundtrack albums. Mm. I mean, uh, especially when they were, especially when it's filled with music. Yeah, you know, back when it came out and you went and saw Raiders of the Lost Ark, it wasn't like you could wait three months or one month or two months or whatever the hell it was and then there'd be a video cassette of it. Yeah. All right, what you could do is you could get the soundtrack album. of the truck chase and then you remembered the truck chase yeah. reliving it on your bed in your yeah bed. yeah or pacing around if you're me all right pacing around your bedroom and like okay this is the part when this happens and this is the part when that happens
whether and it could be uh, John Williams' uh, 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 truck chase theme for uh, uh, Raiders, or it could be uh, Pino Di Gennato's, uh music for the uh, uh, New York Metropolitan Museum sequence in Dress to Kill. You'd put that on, and you just and you just remembered the Brian De Palma sequence. And I actually think that that's one of the reasons I have a bit of a second sense uh -huh. when it comes to using music in yeah. movies because I could do that. I, I, I literally mean. I could hear the different notes in the score for something like Dress to Kill. I can remember this happens at that time and this happens at that time and then I'd see the scene again and then I realize okay the symbols match with this and that matches with that and I didn't have to work too hard at it it was just kind of easy for me to do same thing with the truck chase I could listen to the truck chase and I knew when the music changes and when the different rhythms change where I was in the scene at that time simply from memory oh my god it's amazing there's some really great choices as well in Once Upon a Time in Hollywood with the use of um Bernard Harriman and yeah. Bernstein as well. Oh wow, cool! Yeah. Um, and and in particular the um, the soundtrack for Bounty Law, which is yeah, uh, yeah, that's made up of uh, um, the soundtrack from Bounty Law is a, 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 a terrific album I picked up that was a combination of uh, some of his Western cues that he did for Have Gun More Travel, yeah, and then a whole series of library cues that he just did yeah. for uh, a CBS. Uh, there's also a, a series of, of Revolutionary War series called Ethan Allen that he, that's on there too. But it was mostly the, the Have Gun Will Travel cues and then just literally just Western library cues that well. CBS could use anytime they wanted.
so I built up all the bounty law stuff from that. In fact, yeah. it was even kind of interesting. I liked the idea because uh, uh, I've had a I've had a, a fairly friendly correspondence with uh, Bernard Herman's widow. Amazing. And I wrote a uh, liner notes for the uh, uh, re-release of the uh, Twisted Nerve mm-hmm. soundtrack. So she was very accommodating, but there became a, a neat thing that, like, every time we showed some of Rick's old media, yeah. which is a, a section of the movie, yeah. that it was always scored by Bernard Herrmann. Yeah, uh, I thought it was really neat. I, the, you know, the one that I liked the most, though, was the piece of Bernard Herrmann's score from. Uh, it's well known that that the last movie he did with Hitchcock was the movie uh, Torn Curtain, mm-hmm. and uh, he had written some uh, some different pieces. We had the uh, the, the the murder theme from yeah. um, Torn Curtain in there that he actually never recorded. He wrote it and then uh, what we have is Elmer Bernstein taking it and, and, and kind of redoing it and, mm-hmm. and, and, and getting it on, uh, uh, on vinyl. two pieces of music with an orchestra for Torn Curtain before he was fired by mm-hmm. Hitchcock. And that last piece is in the movie because what happened was it's the scene when Cliff is in Squeaky's house and he's kind of walking down the hallway to knock on George's room and we don't know if George is alive or mm-hmm. what's going on. And uh, it's supposed to be very tense. And so she's listening to TV. So when I first did it, it was more like a, a silly commercial was yeah. going on as he's working his way down the hall. And Tom Rothman, the head of Sony Pictures, was saying, you're trying to do with this ironic counterpoint i don't know if it's working i think it's very scary and i think we need to lean into that i think you should have thriller music playing but now that's easy enough for him to say 
actually he was right. But that's also very easy enough for him to say, I haven't used score in this movie like, uh, until yeah. the end. All right, yeah. yeah. Uh, and so I didn't want to just all of a sudden have this godlike score just pop in, but I could have her change the channel. <laughs> all right. And then so I have her change the channel, and then obviously some thriller music, some thrillers she's watched, some old movie thrillers yeah. she's watching, and that's the Bernard Herrmann music. It actually does exactly what Tom asked for. Yeah. Put great thriller music in to uh, stretch out the suspense of him going down the hall, but I still kept it attached to the television. Yeah. Talk about that, the credits piece, and, and that choice of music that you have at the end. Of the film. Well, the, the end. Um, that's from um, uh, the Western, The Life and Times of Judge Roy Bean. That's uh, actually written by John Mullins, one of my favorite screenwriters. And uh, uh, Maurice Jarre, who's, amongst other things, is famous for being David Lean's composer, um, wrote that. And I've always found that score just incredibly enchanting. Well, at least that theme yeah. in particular the Miss Lily Langtry theme, uh, uh, very enchanting because it's both musical and memorable, but it's also fabulish. Yeah. There's a fable mm -hmm. quality to it. Everyone keeps talking fairy tale, and I'll go with fairy tale, but I think fable is a better way to possibly say it. Yeah. And, uh, you know, but there's also, uh, you know, a calliope mm -hmm. kind of weird aspect to it. And so... Um, I just knew we would, I, I, uh, it just captured the feeling I wanted to conjure for the final image of the film. Yeah.
collaboration from speaking to some of your contemporaries last night just collaboration is such a big part of mm. how you work yeah. and and there was a couple of people that I just wanted to talk about, if you wouldn't mind, sure. and one of those being Mary Ramos, your music mm-hmm. supervisor, which has been a long-standing relationship. Yes, it has been, yeah. From Reservoir Dogs? Yeah, I mean, uh, 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 I think she was helping out Karen Rackman on Reservoir yeah. Dogs and started coming more into her own on Pulp Fiction yeah. and then took over uh, yeah. you, uh, from, I think, Jackie Brown on. And how important is that role and that relationship with your music supervisor? <sighs> she, is, she truly is one of the, the unsung heroes. <laughs> of uh, my filmography and she actually does her job so well that I kind of don't have to think about it mm-hmm. anymore. I can like uh, throw some weird soundtrack thing from some weird Helen Dale thing to track down and she does the due diligence to find it. I mean, even something like, uh, I, I didn't quite even realize how problematic it was. Uh, me using a little bit of Eno Morricone's uh, a score from, Exorcist to the Heretic and Hateful Eight. She had to track down the the women doing the ha-ha-ha's. She had to track them down and get them to sign off on it. Oh, my God. I didn't know that. I read it in an interview, all right, you know? <laughs> I didn't know I had to do it. Had She's to, squiddling uh, away doing all this stuff that you don't even yeah, know. Yeah, <laughs> from, from 1978, all right? I didn't know that that was required, but it was, and she did it. conversation she will but she doesn't want to have the conversation with me she wants to deliver me what i'm asking for and so everything she does is so she doesn't have to have the conversation (laughs) everything all the due diligence is so i just ask for it and it's there and i don't know the whole story about how she got it or all the problems that happened or everything she had to do I, i i her point is that i should never worry about that yeah and the one thing that she never wants to do is we can't do that unsung hero in this and I'm almost taking advantage of her all right uh, uh, because what a tremendous work she does yeah I mean yeah she's uh, I'd love to chat to her actually just then she could tell me all those stories yes you should you, she you got, absolutely should. She got no do things. this on do this on I, the phone with I'd her she would be amazing love to 
can I mention a couple of tracks from the other yeah, films, please. please, if you don't mind, just a couple that I jotted down. Yeah, it's Deep Dive. The David Bowie track, Cat People and Inglorious Bastards. Yeah. Uh-huh. I mean, just the most brilliant use of... Oh, thank you. Oh, my God, an incredible. See these eyes so green I can stare for a thousand years Colder than the moon It's been so long I've been putting up fire with gasoline. At what point did you decide that that was the piece of music for that particular? Because oh, um, even though, uh, you know, you, we talked earlier and you said that you're not, you don't use music as a, a kind of, as a narrative or yeah, as yeah. A, a, but it's so perfect. Oh, it was. That. Well, yeah, but that's different though. See, that's different. I would be less into that song if I gave David Bowie, the, if he had never written it and I gave David Bowie the script yeah. and I told him to write Shoshana a theme yeah. and he wrote it and those would be the lyrics. Yeah. The fact that we know he's not talking about Shoshana. The fact that we know he's talking about cat people. But the fact that it could be Shoshana. And it could be the Jews in France at that time. That the lyrics work perfect for it. But the fact that we know it wasn't written for that. Yet it plays as if it was. That's the magic. Yeah. I think that's the key. That's the key. And then every once in a while, things just work out. When you do a song and you realize, oh, you were right in the first place because things work out. And like... Yeah, I didn't decide to use that piece of music until we were already shooting. Yeah. So the fact that Melanie Laurent has green eyes is as if it was always meant to be. It would not be the same if she didn't have green eyes. See these eyes so green. It just means like it was almost destined to be in the movie from the very beginning. Mm -hmm. I mean, just think of how different it was. It it, it just, it's, it's not the same. No. It's just not the same. Last week I rewatched Jackie Brown and Pulp Fiction. Talk about films growing in time and yeah, uh-huh. growing deeper under your skin. They were an absolute treat to watch again. Oh, thank really, you. really was. The Bobby Womack track um, across 110th Street in Jackie Brown for me is one that really stands out as being a. Oh, yeah, no, me too. <laughs> Doing whatever I had to do to survive I'm not saying what I did was all right Trying to break out of the ghetto was a day-to-day fight Being down so long, getting up didn't cross my mind But I knew there was a better way of life And I was just trying to find You don't know what you do until you put under pressure Across 110th Street is a hell of a tester. Across 110th Street, pimps try to catch a woman next week. Across 110th Street, 
Though, but that was that was also a weird thing for me to do because like people were asking me a lot about the soundtrack on Pulp Fiction when I was doing like a year <laughs> year's worth of press on it. Yeah. And I don't know what the hell I'm doing. I've only done two movies. All right, so I'm coming up with all these theories about well, well, well you can do this, but you can't do that. And, <laughs> uh, you can do this, but I can't do that. And I would never do that. And anybody who does that is an idiot. You know, uh, uh, making all these declarative statements that mm-hmm. I would later eat on toast. Uh, um, <laughs> Uh, but I, I, it didn't take me long to eat them on toast because I started eating them pretty pretty shortly afterwards, all right, uh, on Jackie Brown. Because one of the things like, oh, well, you, you you can't use a song that's already used well in another movie. That was one of my... You can't. Yeah, yeah, you, you can't. <laughs> and the end, and actually, I was wrong. You can't. All right. And now I even kind of like it if something has been used well in another movie. And like, well, well, I can do it if I can do it better. Now, sometimes I actually don't realize it's been used in another movie. So okay, that's my one loophole. Yeah, but if I, I'm, I'm, I'm aware of its usage in something else, then I want to use it differently mm-hmm. or betterly. <laughs> um, <laughs> and uh, with a, Across 110th Street, it was both a combination of one. Not only was it a theme to a whole other movie, mm-hmm. it's talking about New York. And the movie is obviously not in New York. It's obviously set in not only Southern California, but like the beach areas of Southern California. And so it, you know, even the lyrics themselves don't work. Yet everything else talking about the character does work. And even the idea that it's a black exploitation theme, which is exactly what this movie needed. It needed a, a, a black exploitation theme by a famous soul artist mm-hmm. singing it. And it, I thought it just started off well. And I think it, it starts it off well the way it's supposed to yeah. as theme. But when it's played at the end of the movie, it's interior monologue. It's literally what sh- what you imagine she must be thinking, mm-hmm. you know, as she drives off to her next adventure. So clever. about earlier when we were saying about putting soundtracks on and it taking you back to that the hateful eight soundtrack is one that i listen to on vinyl again and again oh wow and that, again that's thrilling thank you and particular um that opening is it i'm going to try and pronounce it in italian lantima diligent i'm not going to try and do it anyway is that the oh, one oh, the, yeah, the, the, uh, yeah. it's an italian yeah. version there of last stage yeah. the red rock there yeah, yeah. <laughs> there we go. that's the one yeah yeah that one I love yeah. 
uh, what the emotion that's can yeah. kind of conveyed in that is just extraordinary. Well, you know, it was really, you know, it was really interesting because it was the first time I'd ever worked with uh, uh, working with an original composer before. And the way it all kind of happened is I got invited to meet Morricone. I sent him the script and we got to translate into Italian. He read it, his wife read it. And then I go to Rome to meet with him about it and we start talking and he realizes that we're going to start shooting the movie fairly shortly and he thought it was a little way, way off. Yeah. And so he was like, uh, um, well, that's just not going to work out. You know, I, I thought it was going to be down the line. I got to work with, I'm working with Giuseppe Totoro right now. I go, oh, okay, well, I guess that's that. But we were already together so we just kept talking. And he had mentioned that he had had a little theme in mind. So I just wanted to know more about where he was coming from yeah. as far as that was concerned. And then we started talking about his score for The Thing. Yeah. And he started telling me how he did that. You know, and then I was thinking about, well, I think I want to use some of that. You know, I go, I, I just felt that this movie, I never had a problem with using music from other movies, but I actually thought this movie deserved its own soundtrack. And then he was like, um, well, it just turns out when it comes to The Thing... <laughs> If you have the soundtrack album, only one cut of that is in the movie. I did an orchestra version of everything, and I did a, a synth synthesizer score of everything. I didn't think I said that word right. Because Carpenter had done it before. I thought he might like it because he's more used to it. Yeah. And then the only thing he used was the title track from the synthesizer score. He just cut that up and just used that throughout the movie. So every single other cut in this movie has never been used in a movie before. So he goes, oh, and it works out mystery-wise. It works out because of the snow. It works out because the guys are trapped together in the same environment, which is like it is in the thing. And so he goes, well, how about this? Why don't you use the tracks from the thing that weren't used in the film? Yeah. And then what I can do is that little theme that I'm talking about, I can come up with about four different variations of that. And then now you have your original score. And so I was great, sounds wonderful.
then the next day I was at the uh, the Davids, which is their, I think it was giving Enio a, a, a lifetime oh, achievement yeah. award or something like that. And uh, so we meet each other at the at the, the Davids the very next night. Yeah. And he's sitting next to me. And so he bumps into me. So we bump into each other in our tuxedos and uh, sit down in the theater. And he gives me a big hug. And he goes, Quentin, uh, I've changed my mind. <laughs> I'm going to write more. I'm going to write more. I'm going to write more. A, a couple more themes came to me the other night. And so you're going to have about 45 minutes of original music. Whoa. <laughs> That's amazing. Which you was not the deal, all right? You know, <laughs> I just kept uh, I just kept hanging in there and kept getting a little bit more and a little bit more until finally, no, he, no, he's just, you know, you can still use the, the other thing tracks to supplement stuff, but you're going to have 45 minutes of original music. of original music by the way your music editor puts together that's like yeah that's like that can be 12 different tracks <laughs> yeah <laughs> that's amazing right we've run out of time and i'm just going to finish by playing boys and heart uh is that the one boys and heart yeah huh? they didn't they didn't make it oh, oh, oh uh, teardrop city yeah. oh yeah oh, no, so i thought uh, it'd be nice if we played that because it didn't make the film i would love that yeah. i would like that was definitely that was always the choice for the opening credits all right okay. teardrop city as they drive around town <laughs> what's our closing credits today perfect and um, thank you so much for your time sir oh thank you so much for your enthusiasm and um, and speak to you again i hope thank i you. look forward to it thank you and do talk to mary room well well Teardrop City by Boyce and Hart, the track that got away from Quentin Tarantino's latest masterpiece, Once Upon a Time in Hollywood. My huge thanks to Quentin for taking the time to talk to us. Once Upon a Time is on general release now, with the soundtrack including all that KHG archive available through Columbia Records. 
Now, as always, we'll put a Spotify playlist up for this show via edithbowman.com, where you can also subscribe to the podcast and catch up with all of our previous episodes. Follow us on Facebook, Instagram and Twitter. We are at Soundtracking UK and do keep spreading the word. We are eternally grateful when you do. Next up, another legend in the shape of Pedro Almodovar on his latest movie, Pain and Glory. I very much look forward to the pleasure of your company then.